Welcome to another podcast of the Apologist Bookshelf, Gary Zacharias. I'm taking a look at, uh, for the second time, at a book called Guide to How It All Began, and they call it a user-friendly approach. Questions like, where did we come from? Was there a plan? Is there proof? And uh, so I've talked about one chapter in the past. I want to look at chapter seven this time. It's uh, on the origin of life, and subtitle there is Fossils and Cells Have a Lot to Tell. So a little rhyme to start with there. They have a quote from Malcolm Muggeridge at the beginning. I myself am convinced that the theory of evolution, especially to the extent to which it has been applied, will be one of the greatest jokes in the history books of the future. Posterity will marvel that so very flimsy and dubious a hypothesis could be accepted with the incredible credulity it has. Uh, <clears throat> you know, there, I, I think there's a lot of reasons why people are so eager to buy into uh, evolution, but that's another story, so I won't go that direction. So right, here we go, the origin of life, fossils and cells. And they said, uh, to start with, I say they, it's uh, Bruce Bickle and Stan Jantz, they're the authors. So they say, um, you know, something that's fundamental to science is observation. You perform some kind of an experiment, and then you, you watch, you, you see what happens. And said, here's the problem, though, when it comes to the origin of life, there was nobody around to observe how it started. Nobody's hiding in the bushes there. So what do you do? What does science do to determine how life came to planet Earth? Well, what they said happens is we have to fall back on observation, but we have to observe clues now and try to base theories and explanations on those. So that's what they're going to do in the chapter. Take a look at some of the theories for how life began and how it progressed. So let's start in on that. So what the first life forms look like? So there appears to be a broad consensus among scientists that the first life appeared on Earth about three and a half billion years ago. And those are cyanobacteria, really primitive, kind of algae-like. And they didn't progress very quickly, according to this uh, theory there. After about a billion years, the Earth still wasn't home to much more than mounds of this cyanobacteria called stromatolites and they're in shallow water seas. So it says, uh, you're not going to see any life uh, forms like animals. That's going to be way off in the future. So they said there are three possible explanations for the start of it all. It says, let's stick to the three primary scientific explanations that seem the most probable. So here's number one. Explanation one for the beginning of life, God. Maybe God did it. If you don't want to give him a name, then call it an intelligent designer. And this explanation says that there was an outside power or agent that initiated or guided the initiation of life on earth. And so they, the claim there is that if you look at origin of life experiments, that they have failed to show that natural processes are capable of creating light. Life, <laughs> sorry. Uh, then here's explanation number two. How'd life begin? Well, maybe it came from outer space. Perhaps there's life somewhere else in the universe and maybe like a, a spore or something like that traveled into our atmosphere. And they said, you know, that's possible, but it's certainly not probable. It's a pretty tough travel for uh, any kind of bacteria out in space there. It's, you got radiation, you got the heat, you got the cold, and the distances, it would just take forever. And they said, of course, if the theory is correct, that doesn't really solve our problem of how life began. It just shifts the inquiry from our planet, Earth, to some other one, it'd still remain. How did life on fill in the blank begin there? So it says, seems pretty unlikely that life originated somewhere else and came to Earth. Well, how about number three? This is the one that's the biggie today. It just happened by itself. 
So Darwinists promote the explanation that life in the form of the first living cell developed from non-living matter under certain chemical conditions. They call it prebiotic evolution. That word prebiotic just means before you ended up with biological life. So it says something like three and a half billion years ago, matter and energy and atmospheric conditions somehow interacted and it brought complex life forms, cells, into existence. Now, explanation three, they say, is the one that's most universally held. So he said, let's take a closer look at it. So this is the idea that it just happened by chance. So the Darwinist position for the origin of life is that there's some kind of chance combination of non-living chemicals. And they said, you know, if you go back hundreds of years, people believed that life forms could just originate suddenly without any predecessor life form to produce them, just popped into existence, and they called that spontaneous generation. They said that was uh, the way they looked at things. Like, you know, as an example, you leave a piece of meat out, and you leave it long enough, and it's covered with maggots. They didn't come in from the front door. They just appear on the meat. Hmm. So maybe life forms could just arise spontaneously. And that was accepted for a long, long time until the theory of spontaneous generation was accepted before the invention of the microscope because nobody could see the bacteria on the meat, but it was there. And that's how you ended up with the maggots. There were pre-existing bacteria on there. So then, finally, by the early part of the 20th century, people recognized their conclusion was life only comes from pre-existing life. Cells only come from other cells. But that didn't discourage the Darwinists. They admitted spontaneous generation of cells wasn't possible now, but they theorized, well, maybe three and a half billion years ago, conditions on life's on the surface of the Earth and its atmosphere were different. In other words, it couldn't happen now, but it did happen back then. So how would they come up with that? What would they rely on for that idea? Well, in 1924, there's a Russian biochemist, Oparin was his name. He theorized that the atmosphere, maybe the early atmosphere of the Earth, was completely different than it is now. And then he speculated that maybe something like a volcano blowing off or lightning striking would act on simple carbon compounds in the atmosphere and zap them and transform them into more complicated compounds. And they'd fall to earth and they would form microscopic clumps. And those were the predecessors to the first cells. Then in the 1920s, there was an English biochemist, Haldane was his name. And he thought maybe the sun's ultraviolet light caused the gases in the atmosphere to transform into organic compounds, and it turned the ocean into kind of a, a soup. And out of that soup came virus-like particles that turned into the first cells. And then maybe the most famous experiment done to try to prove this was done by two men, Miller and Urey, in the 1950s. And they did an apparatus, put an apparatus together that attempted to duplicate what they thought the atmosphere was like, and they then zapped it with a little spark, and they got some gunk on the bottom. They didn't get cells, but they got some amino acids. And they said, hey, first step, you need those amino acids. They're the building blocks for proteins. We're on our way. So Darwinists were really excited about that. But the experiments only supported the first part of the Oprah and Haldane hypothesis. They didn't reach the next step of getting cells. They got some amino acids, but they didn't get cells. And then there are a lot of problems with that experiment. They said uh, part of the problem is there was no oxygen in the atmosphere of primitive Earth. So that would have ruined the experiment. It says this assumption may be fatally flawed. 
Right now, the Earth's atmosphere is 21% oxygen. Back then, if it was only 1%, you couldn't get organic compounds to form. And they said they're, they're finding out now that there was a lot of oxygen back then. If that's true, you, you, there was not an oxygen-free atmosphere back then that, that they needed. Okay, I hope that makes sense. The starting from nothing, zapping kind of theory says you, you can't have a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere. But they're beginning to find that that's not true. There was a lot of oxygen, and it was not oxygen-free. So there's a problem. Another problem is the starting materials. People used to think, well, we need methane and ammonia in the clouds. But now they're starting to believe that those two things were not present in the early atmosphere. If you remove those gases and you replace them by the ones they pretty much now believe were in the early atmosphere, you don't get amino acids. So that's a problem. And so they've kind of given up on the Miller-Urey thing. So how did life move along? So I said, let's not get into that prebiotic soup there. Let's shift the focus. So let's, let's say somehow you did get algae. But today you've got aardvarks and alligators. You've got anteaters. How did that happen? From that primitive single-cell life to the exotic creatures that are around today. Well, so what's the theory of Darwinism? That all life forms today descended from a single ancestor. So there is some kind of biological chain that hooks everything together. So these new life forms, they, the Darwinists say, were the results of minor changes over many years. That's that natural selection idea, survival of the fittest. So you had new useful traits got passed along to a new generation because of some kind of mutation, and the harmful traits got eliminated. Now, if you give yourself enough time, that better equipped organism won't look like the old ones. It'll start changing. So Darwin recognized that if his theory was true, then what should happen is the fossil record's going to show a lot of what kind of changes? Gradual. It's got to be gradual. Pretty obvious because it's incremental changes here. He thought the fossil record would show gradual change from one form into another. Oops. The problem for Darwin in, in his day was that the fossil record did not show gradual changes. It didn't show changes from one type to another. And Darwin recognized that, but he was hoping and he was expecting that as people did more and more work out in the field and found more and more fossils, that they would come across examples that actually did show that kind of change. Because, after all, studying prehistoric forms of life was in its infancy back then. But Darwin was confident they would... They would find transitional fossils. Well, 120 years have passed since Darwin. And it says in that time, paleontology has gotten more sophisticated, and they found all sorts of fossils, no doubt. But the fossil evidence that's been collected has pretty much undercut the foundation of Darwin's theory of gradual ma macroevolution. And they said maybe the best fossil evidence against Darwinism is something they discovered during the Cambrian period, which is about 500 million years ago. It was the beginning of the Paleozoic era. And what they found is an explosion of life. Pretty much all you had was algae and some primitive ferns and other plants before that. And then in the 500 million years time period there, boom, the appearance of almost all the major phyla that characterize modern animal life over just a few million years 20 to 35 different phyla appeared. There was a burst of multicellular life. It was so dramatic that the New York Times in 1991 had this headline, Spectacular Fossils Record 
early riot of creation. Wow. So because of this abrupt appearance, uh, researchers are calling it the Cambrian Explosion, and scientists some kind, sometimes refer to it as the biological Big Bang, just like the Big Bang that brought the universe into existence. And there, there's a top-down pattern. In other words, here's what you see when you look at uh, the fossils. Major themes of life's history, in other words, animal body designs appear first, and then there are variations. They said that's just the opposite of the bottom-up Darwinian model. The idea there was that you had a, an animal, and then it gradually changed into a different animal, but they're not finding that to be the case at all. It's kind of surprising. The Cambrian explosion is bad news for the Darwinists. Why? It reveals all of a sudden new appearance of all basic designs of body architecture. They're so different. How'd that happen? And the fossil record after the, Dar after the Cambrian explosion and, and the Cambrian period doesn't help the Darwinists much either. After that explosion, almost no new phyla appear in the fossil record. Isn't that weird? That's pretty strange. So the Darwinist prediction was something like this. Think of it as a tree growing. In other words, you have the trunk, that would be that one cell animal, and then it gradually changed. Now you're starting to get some branches, and then you get more and more branches until you arrive at us and all the animals today. So think of it as a tree. That's the way they pictured it. But that's not what the fossil record reveals. You know what we get instead? Something that looks much more, instead of a tree, it looks like grass. It's not a tree. They actually said, you know, it looks a little bit like a barcode. You get all these lines. In other words, animals come into existence preformed, pretty much, and they don't change. Pretty weird. So I said, if that problem uh, wasn't enough for the Darwinists, now they've got a new challenge. It's called irreducible complexity. That's some kind of a system that animals have, different bodies have, and it's not. you don't get it by gradual successive modifications or refinements. So Darwin recognized this was a problem. In fact, he admitted in his book, The Origin of Species, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. So he conceded, if you can find a system inside a body that needs all the parts of it there for it to function right, and it all comes about at the same time, that's not Darwin. That's not gradual changes. And at Darwin's time, he didn't understand how complex living things were. And then the two authors here referenced Michael Behe. He wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box. So he used the illustration of a mousetrap. You know, a mousetrap has five parts. It's got a platform, got a holding bar, it's got a hammer, it's got a catch and the spring. It doesn't work unless every piece is all working at the same time. And the same thing is going on in a living cell. Many of its systems won't function unless all the parts are there. And uh, it says, Behe tried to find explanations by Darwinists for how a cell might have evolved. You'd think they would have all sorts of explanations. How do you get a cell? But Behe says, if you look in the professional science literature about how these systems that he's talking about, how they arose, it turns out nobody has published anything. And they use especially one system that he talks about and others have talked about, it's the human eye. It's an irreducibly complex biological system. You can't get the eye to work if any part of it is missing. And remember, Darwinian evolution is gradual change. It's happenstance. It's just here and there. 
but you'd have to have every piece of the eye evolve precisely at the same time for it to do any good at all. Isn't that fascinating? Wow. Okay, so I'm starting to wrap up here, getting near the end of the chapter. Um, people have tried to get around this. There was a theory for a while called punctuated equilibrium that a species stays the same for a long period of time, then boom, one little population has rapid evolutionary change. And then only after the changed population gets big enough and then takes over the others, will they show up as fossils. But that's not really, uh, scientists have poo-pooed that one. They can't figure out what to do with that. Of course, if you're talking about Darwin, you're looking for transitional forms. That's the big um, area that people would question. Well, aren't there some transitional links, missing links? And one that always has come up is Archaeopteryx, which is kind of a bird-like thing. And Darwin has said, see, this is the moving from lizard to bird. But a combination of features doesn't mean that it was traditional. It, it could be an intermediate without the creature being transitional. There, there are too many structural differences of this thing to be the ancestor of modern birds. They give a couple of other examples, and there's really not much that they've been able to find uh, in that field. Okay, so that's the end of the chapter. I like the book because they give you some other places to go to. <clears throat> There's one called, a uh, good book they recommend is of pandas and people. And Michael Denton's book, a little uh, heavier reading, called Evolution, A Theory in Crisis. And they mentioned Darwin's Black Box by Behe. Jonathan Wells has a book called Icons of Evolution. And then Dr. Hugh Ross, a person I've met, and uh, I think he's a wonderful individual, he's got a book called What's Darwin Got to Do With It? All right, so there you go. Uh, does the Darwinian idea work? No, it's got a lot of holes in it. So I hope you enjoyed this chapter. And again, the book is called Guide to How It All Began. And it's uh, I think it's easy enough for a high school student, probably even a junior higher, uh, to take a look at. So if you got somebody in the family that's kind of curious and wants a quick once-over, it's got some really good things in here. Okay, well, that's it for this time. And uh, thanks. We'll do another podcast soon, I hope. Bye-bye.